Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, and today's episode is the first with a prerequisite. Usually I have uh, musicians on this show, and if you haven't heard them before, no big deal. Uh, Today, however, I am talking with Roger Hill, the director of the film Huckleberry, and if you haven't seen the film, then you should save this episode until after you have, because we gonna spoiler. Uh, You can buy or rent Huckleberry on Amazon, and it is included free with Prime. Or, if you want the full movie experience, uh, here in Cleveland, you can catch an upcoming screening of Huckleberry, followed by another Q&A, at the Cleveland Cinema in Shaker Square on Thursday, July 18th at 7pm. It's about a week from tomorrow, if you're listening to this the day it drops. Uh, I'll also have links to that and other screenings. There's actually one coming up at the end of July in New York. Um, I will have all of that up on the website at bzdug.com slash podcast. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Um, you can find them on Facebook at slash Huckleberry Movie. And from there, it'll go out to, you'll find all the other things. Uh, please like, please follow, please watch the movie. Please uh, do take the time to rate and review the film on Amazon after you watch it. It really does a lot to help the visibility of these smaller indie films. Um, and if you're so inclined, do the same for this podcast as well. Though not on Amazon. I don't think Bezos has his filthy mitts and podcasting yet so all right well that's it uh let's get right into my q a with roger hill thank you for listening so we are sitting here live with probably the biggest audience we've had we've done live podcasts before uh but usually it'll be like the guest brought over a friend or we have a neighbor coming over to like check it out um deb is as usually uh, a, a an audience member for most of the time um, so I just want to say thank you, everyone, for uh, coming and for screening the film that we just saw, which is Huckleberry, directed and written by Roger Hill. Correct. Thanks for having me. This is my first director Q and A. Uh, normally, it's musicians, but you are not a musician. You are so you're you're you know just someone who happened to come to the show I have here, and uh, you're friends with uh, Larry Elefante, aka Michael Rotation. You went to school together, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yes. And um, We're college friends. College friends. Yeah, at uh, Ohio University. Correct. All right. See, this I'm trying to ease you into this, where I will just. Do your bio for you. Yes, that, that hel- that's helpful. Is it? Okay, yeah. good. Because <laughs> I just realized I'm doing that. Yeah, that's no, fine. <laughs> so uh, what we do in this show is I tell you everything I know about this guest, yeah. and he will say yes or no. Yes. And <laughs> I might throw in a copy. Copy that. Or um, Roger. Con- confirmed. Yes. You're never going to say Roger, though? I might. We'll see. you got to play that card at the end. You know. All right, we'll we'll tag that later. <laughs> anyway, so uh, no, but you came into my life by happenstance. You happen to be an audience member here, and then uh, just from being friends with you on Facebook, I learned that you had this sh- this this movie coming out. Uh, and then we organically, before we get into Huckleberry, I did just want to do a little bit of like your background as a filmmaker. So you yes. went to Ohio University, but you are coming out of the documentary world. Yeah, so I went to OU and I started shooting a documentary in 2002, 
through 2004 during the run-up to the Iraq War and through the first couple years of the Iraq War uh, centered along the protests against the war. And um, so I traveled all over the country um, while a student. I actually dropped out for a year um, to do that. Full time. It's not completely dropping out if you're pursuing what you're going to be. It's not like you, you're you yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to just like work in the mall for a year. It, it was the most like productive, constructive, you know, educational year that I had during my tenure there. And uh, I actually met a lot of professors in the film school during my off, quote unquote, off year. And, um, you know, got a lot of personal feedback and attention from them. Um, because they liked that I was just doing it. Um, and, um, you know, so, yeah, so exactly. I, I just sort of carved my own education yeah. out of it. Well, and, um, so I do want to get to the film and however much time you're like, you're like, ah, whatever my background. But I, I, I um, I, the one thing I know we talked about was your work on, uh, elections, election security in, uh, or election fraud, or was it focused on machines? There's so many problems with elections, it's hard to keep straight which documentary is which. <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. Uh, that was also, uh, that was in 2004. We started shooting um, during the presidential election when Ohio was the key swing state that swung it from Kerry to George W. Bush. And the film covers all areas of election fraud, from faulty machines to voter suppression, uh, targeting, um, you know, African-American communities, poor communities, um, and what was not as well known, a lot of ballot box stuffing in predominantly Republican districts. So, I mean, I think we could fill a whole... No, and honestly, that's why I I was fine with you just giving like, you know, you can give like a a paragraph about that because uh, as we go into these problems persist and I would love to have you back to kind of just talk about that and talk about this, like what you've, you know, because that's the interesting thing about this and we'll move on, though, is that you're talking about what, 2004? Yeah. And And we are in going into 2020 and these problems have not abated. No, no, they're worse. Like from, yeah. So that's why I'm like, I want to get, stay up to date and go deep with you on that. But that's not for tonight. Um, tonight I did want to talk about Huckleberry and specifically just kind of bridging that with your background. What were the challenges of moving from documentary to fictional narrative? Cause the things that jump out to me would be, you know, casting and, uh, dramatic, you know, getting the right dramatic performance out of things and the things that are consistent which are um, like the uh, cinematography and location scouting and all that. But I'm curious what you knew, what you thought you were in for and that what you turned out to be in for as you went through the process. It was kind of a return to what I wanted to do originally. You know, like in high school, I was I wanted to get into narrative filmmaking, Um, but documentary, you know, was more accessible um, during my college years. And, um, so, and then I was also very involved with, you know, the anti-war movement and, you know, election integrity, et cetera. Um, so it was kind of when I finished my last documentary flying paper, um, I, I sort of had a window after 15 years of doing documentary work and thought that this was sort of now or never as far as getting back into doing narrative stuff or, not even back into like getting into in the first place really. Um, 
so so that was like yeah it was a it was sort of a big step into the unknown like a lot of it is similar like you know preparing budgets like you said um and not so much location scouting i didn't really do that for documentary I just kind of went there here and there with my camera but well you're looking around at what you have what you happen to be at to find but i think that's got to train your eye a bit to be like looking deeper around for i, I think what documentary really trained me was looking for subtext and nuance and in, in um you know not looking at things really black and white but you know really like acknowledging that every character, every person, every life has a different context. Even if you grow up in the same place, your, your context is totally different. And, um, so I, I think like I was able to infuse some of that sort of, I guess, social like realism into Huckleberry or I try to anyway. And, um, to sort of like get into these kind of complex issues without, you know, being super heavy handed about it or, you know, preachy or dogmatic, you know, just more like trying to um, create a character driven thing where people identify with somebody, even if they may or may not, you know, expect to identify with that person, especially with Huckleberry. Um, and, and that kind of just to sort of tag on, you know, my last documentary flying paper um, is a documentary about, kids in the Gaza Strip who set out to break the world record for flying the most kites at one time. So a very something very unexpected in a very like challenging and troubled environment um, where it's really hard to have conversations about kids in Gaza or just people in Gaza because you know, it just leads to these sort of political diatribes. Well, n people in the worst circumstances that's, I mean, like, it's how they're surviving to some degree. Is like there's things that they're doing that aren't tied to that. And, yeah. Exactly. And and the kids are, you know, I mean, children are universal. I mean, like, there's a lot of universal themes in that movie. And I think, like, because it isn't, like, I mean, it's set in the context. It's really set in the context of Gaza. There's no escaping that. But it's not dogmatic. It's it's just, like, a sort of a slice of life of these kids preparing to do this, you know, to set, to set this world record. So, um, that was a good transition into Huckleberry because my other films were more issue based and this was more character driven. So it was sort of a natural progression. Now I talked to you a little bit about, um, we kind of did like a pre discussion about like, Oh, you want to do a screening? And we ended up just organically talking about the movie. And, uh, one thing I recall was that this is a story that's been with you for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously changed a lot. Um, it was... And that, I, well, kind of like, if I can throw out, like, some of my thoughts about, like, you said that it's been with you for a while, and then having, like, I, wa I watched the movie twice now, um, just sort of, like, watch it once, and and I will say, there's a lot I got in the rewatch, and I'm a big rewatcher, like, I, I, I've rewatched all of my favorite series, you know, many times, just because it's like, there's a richness to it, like, if you're a fan of The Wire, like, you know, Game of, and whatever your shit is, whatever your show is, I'm sorry for those of you whose show is Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> that's another podcast that's a, we yeah. will have to have, we'll do but I will Sunday. say, tying it kind of back to that is subverting expectations, mm -hmm. which is how, like, you observed in life people subvert your expectations 
and bringing that in, you know, that you wanted to bring that out in a narrative thing. And one thing that I thought was interesting was there's a plot in this movie that I could kind of see happening absent of some of the issues that are that are put into it that make the people the, who they are and how that built into what it is. Because um, I feel like there's an interesting progression there if you've had it for a long time. So the film, you know, germinated in my mind when I was 17 and I was having a revenge fantasy against uh, a, f- a girl that I liked whose boyfriend was abusive. And the film, like, really, th- that was the spark of the movie, was me, like, fantasizing about how I was going to torment this guy, which I didn't do, but I put it into the script. And, um, you know, so that's where a lot of the, the imagery and, you know, the, the really kind of like the fun stuff came from. Um, and then, you know, I, I would like fill up notebooks. I mean, like, you know, it was such a mess. Like (laughs) my notes were on the, on the movie were such a, such a mess, but I, I picked it back up in college and, um, you know, changed it, changed it again. And then finally again i picked it up and was like and just to get a sense know. of your uh, mental state were there all these notes towards the movie about the crazy revenge fantasy you had <laughs> or were you writing out the revenge fantasy yeah i was writing out the revenge fantasy oh okay because <laughs> that was a distinction well that's the stuff that i was made it too. into the movie <laughs> the other stuff was just like nonsense you know like just writing cool characters and yeah. like funny dialogue and stuff like just meandering all over the place, which is what you should do. I mean, you know, it's like my, uh, this is a good opportunity to like share some good advice for script writers is my good friend Kia has this uh, saying, which is fear, not the shitty first draft. And I, I try to remind myself of that, you know, when I'm like starting a new project because it's so much more fun and exciting to like edit something that's already past the rough cut stage, but you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta lay those bricks. So I live, I feel like I've lived by similar advice, which is, um, allow yourself to suck. Exactly. And, and which I, which was something that came out of, um, there was an improv theater in New York called the people's improv theater, the pit. And they had, uh, over the wall there, follow the fear. And I then translated that internally to what am I afraid of? I'm afraid that I suck. Just allow yourself to suck. Just follow that. And that's how you get better. Someone asked me recently, like, you know, what are some mistakes to avoid? And I'm like, don't avoid your mistakes. I mean, sure. Like I can give you like, you know, back up your footage on an extra hard drive. And (laughs) I can tell you like, Murphy was an optimist. My mentor, Tom Hayes, has this great saying. Murphy was an optimist. He's like, in fact, what can't go wrong will go wrong when you're making a movie. So, like, you have to, like, be extra prepared for that. Anyway, you should make mistakes because that's the only way to learn in the process. You know, I mean, I've made all the mistakes. And, you know, that's it's just part of the process. That's how you learn and get better at, at your craft is by making mistakes and not fearing them and, you know, trying to avoid them at all costs. So how did this story evolve where you see that it came from your first draft to what it, what we saw on screen tonight? 
Well, when I, you know, really got into it, um, and I, 2016, I started, you know, re-scripting the thing, right? And um, at this point, you know, I had a more wisdom, I guess, and um, have learned from enough mistakes that, you know, I, I was able to sort of craft this into something cohesive. Um, but that said, it was always fairly fluid. I mean, we went into the proof of concept with like a 120 page script and then we shot a week in October of 16 and a week in December of 16. And then we shot in two weeks of August of 17. So almost a whole year. And then by August, the script was down to 90 pages and, um, we'd added, we'd actually cut it down like 30%, but also added scenes based on like what I was, what we were seeing developing between certain characters and certain actors and stuff like that. Like, um, for example, in the movie, um, Huckleberry's love interest, Jolene, uh, has a relationship with her mother which I think is really powerful and none of that really was in the script originally. It was just vibing with the characters and stuff like that. So, you know, I think like there's only so much at least, and maybe this is kind of lending to my documentary experience where I didn't go into it with a script. Like, like David Mamet will go in with a script and it's like every single like syllable has to be hit exactly perfect. Right. Well, they're fantastic. Um, mechanisms for getting incredible performances if you look at curb your enthusiasm right it was just never all had a improv, script right. i mean like you they had the beats they knew they had to hit and then they just played them as realistically as they could for comedy but i don't see why you couldn't apply that to it was kind of a, it was sort of sort of in between i would say you know like there were like definitely moments and beats that i really wanted to hit hard and then there was a lot of times where we would you know, let the ad actors ad lib or just write whole scenes on the fly the day before we were shooting because like we had people there and ready to go. So, well, and I got to imagine that there's, there's no reason not to allow it to be that organic process. And I know that some of the shows I love, there are, um, one I will always plug is the expanse and they ended up with great, uh, cast for certain members and, you know, someone who listens to like their podcast, you know, like they'll do one for every episode of that show and I'll get into it. And like, they talk about how like, Oh, we realized what we had in this actor and it born yeah. more words and scenes that they could they're suddenly like, Oh, we've got all this to play with now. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that was a, a cool thing about, doing the proof of concept in stages and almost 10 months between the proof of concept and the bulk of the shooting was we got to know more about the actors and we got to flesh out these characters, you know, like Huckleberry in the script is, and in my mind originally going into the movie is so much different than Huckleberry on the screen because I think Dan, I don't think I know Dan, brought so much of his, you know, personal, uh, story and his, you know, emotional, um, strength to the, to the role. And what we sort of see on camera on, the, on the screen is sort of this hodgepodge of, you know, like how I originally envisioned Huck and then Dan bring in, you know, all of his, you know, uh, nuance and, you know, really like emotional, like depth to the film. Um, so, so it was 
new for me because I haven't really worked with actors like that before. So that, that was a great learning experience. And, um, you know, I think again, like it was good not to be dogmatic about it and, to you know, allow a little bit of space for that. Yeah. Well, and I have to get to the, um, one of the, the, the big questions I'd have, especially knowing that this was sort of your autobiographical, the genesis of it is an autobiographical revenge fantasy against, you know, and you are essentially Huck in that narrative. Yes. How does this character become transgender? Um, because that was what I was saying is, is what's interesting is like, this is a plot where it, it's kind of great to see. I mean, tr not that like the hatred against transgender doesn't factor into the plot, but the kind of points of someone pulling off a certain type of revenge fantasy like that, it was just interesting to see like, oh, it's just a transgender person being a human being. And it's yeah. it's not all about that's not the defining thing about they're They're like they're a complex, full human being. And and there's like, you know, just love, you know, a note I have that is just like that goes into a lot of detail with the script is I love all the different layers of ambiguity um, that you play with here. But I'm definitely wanted to uh, understand why having a transgender person be at the center of what is like a love triangle and protecting the person they care about important to you. That's a good question. And that that's, um, there's a few points that I, I should probably make about that. So, I mean, I didn't originally write Huckleberry as transgender, you know, when I was 17, like I, I wasn't, thinking that way well that's why i was asking about the evolution yeah. of the script because you say how long ago it was and i was right. curious if it well, was, was originally started with that point no so originally huckleberry was straight and cisgender and um but what i think is good about that is that it allowed a plot that has nothing to do with huckleberry coming out um which i think oftentimes transgender characters and actors get <laughs> or cisgender actors playing transgender characters get um, pigeonholed into these stories that are just about victimization or their coming out, you know, struggle. Um, so this starts like after that movie. <laughs> or yeah, or no, exactly. Because, you know, we open the film with Huckleberry walking out of the boys' room. So, like, you know, like, yes. he's been through a lot of this already. Because there had that. to have been that movie. You could write the prequel to this because mm -hmm. we saw Huckleberry wearing a bra and or being with a woman, or, you know, but I don't know. Somewhere that story, every, every child, no matter how young, has yeah. that story. But we're starting kind of in the middle of her story, his story. Yes, correct. And um, I think. Yeah, right. So his story could have been, you know, from his coming out story could have been like from 13 to 16 or something like that. Well, it, you we know, it's funny. Like, after that. I have it way later in my notes, but um, the, we don't because you don't bring it up chronologically. But I, I, I like to I, I really liked the exposition where we learn we don't know who is it, Rick? Rick is the We don't know father. who Rick is. It's just like he comes in, Rick's in a NASCAR, and like, hey, Huck, what's up? Uh, Dale Earnhardt. Right. And, and then later on, you know, like he's like asking me on dinner, but it's not until the cops come around that we learn that Rick is a foster parent. And we learn that Huck's mom was at least supportive of this decision. Right. That she's like made the, you know, made it official to say like it's, it's a he and her mom right. uh, validated that. Right. Uh, I, 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 that was one thing I really enjoyed was the exposition of who Huckleberry was. Yeah. And it, you know, it sort of trickles in through the conversation. Um, 
just to circle back, like, so originally I did not write Huckleberry as transgender. In college, I fiddled around with the script a little bit, and I thought it would be a much more powerful film and more meaningful if Huckleberry were queer identified. Then I, I just sort of left that ambiguous. And then when I went back to the script, I just I always think of Huckleberry as a man, but I think of him as queer identified too. So I was like, well, duh, you know, Huckleberry's transgender and he's been transgender probably since the beginning, you know? So, um, when I, when I think about like why he was persecuted in some instances in his township, it's, you know, so that, that's what I mean by why he's kind of always been transgender in my mind. Um, so that was kind of the genesis of it. And again, like the plot was already like, you know, scripted out basically. And, you know, again, didn't have anything to do with his gender identity per se. So it comes up in the story, but it's not like the central arc of the story at all and in no way. And that makes, but it also doesn't, yeah, it doesn't shy away from showing those, those, you know, aggressions where the, the institution, the school refers to Huckleberry. Yeah. the wrong name. Yeah. People are constantly misgendering him. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's also supposed to be like realistic and to give the audience like an idea of what Huckleberry's life is and what one scene that I really love a lot is when Huckleberry gets called into the principal's office and the principal is just like constantly misgendering him and, you know, refuses to call him Huckleberry, calls him by his birth name. And um, I think that's a great trick, not a great trick, but I think it's great for the audience because you can't not be on Huckleberry's side in that scene. You know, like you have to be a real asshole to be on the principal's scene in that scene. And I, and I think like, that's what the power of film is, is that it less, it, you know, it takes your guard down and it forces you, empathy upon you. Yeah. Or, you know, or what are you going to like, just sit there and watch and be like, you know, the whole time. I mean, maybe I guess if you're an asshole, but you know, I think, <laughs> you know, I think we have a pretty left-leaning audience for this podcast. Well, here's one. here's the interesting thing is that so this was set in 1999. Uh I graduated high school in 1996 and um I remember it, it it seems like it was this cusp of where that just started to be like kids realized I can be gay in school. I can be transgender. And now I'm you know like and now where we are uh almost, you know, 20 years later it's so much not a thing saying that as um, for the audience. Uh, I think it's, everyone knows except for you. Sorry. <laughs> I have a, a recently come out transgender sister. And so I've gone into this world a little bit deeper. And then like I've so I've been going to like trans family meetings where I meet people who are at all different stages. And and the ones who are very young, they go off and talk amongst themselves. Right. And because they're in their you know, like they want to. Maybe they want to talk about how their parents are just like, you know, and and but the parents all get together and talk about what this is and and that it's definitely the older generation that is having a harder time of this. And the newer generation is is far more accepting. I mean, it can vary from region to region, obviously. Sure. But setting this in 1999 really places it in a different context of that seems like it's the beginning of that, but it wasn't as far along as where things might be getting now. 
it's the year that boys don't cry came out um uh it's also you know it's the era that i'm more familiar with being a teenager so i mean that is part of it too like i didn't want to write a film in 2018 or 2017 because i i don't know like intimately what it's like to be a teenager nowadays you know what i mean that's very interesting i didn't think of that because i immediately went to with wondering about the year and the setting it was not only about um because it creates a certain um political context or a, a social context for someone who's transgendered but also because it it dawned on me watching it that there are plot points that can only occur before mobile phones yeah her going to a pay phone being left and abandoned by uh, uh clint Right. And then having to go call from a payphone and pagers and things like that. If, right. if that was also that, but that's I didn't even think of the fact that like, well, if you're going to write it honestly, you're writing from your context as a teenager in that time. Yeah, and you know, I was very much following the adage of write what you know, and um, so that was part of it. And again, that was another part of it was that, yeah, exactly. That scene doesn't work if if cell phones are ubiquitous as they are now, and. Um, I'm checking my notes for this interview on one. one oh, talk. Also, in case you're wondering, and I'm not just like, oh, who liked my post on Facebook? I, I'm, it, I, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's also an, an, an interesting time in that it's sort of the dawn of the digital age. Like people are mainstream people are catching up to the Internet now. You know, the Internet's not just for. I know, was Huckleberry. I was absolutely yeah. Huckleberry. The person that was telling my friends in, in college for me, like. You can get MP3s. Yeah. What? Like, I'm like, I just burned this fucking thing. Yeah. Like Napster was just like yeah. crushing it at the time. I mean, it was like, it was anarchy, you know, it was like the digital, like wild west. And um, so I yeah, owe so my like, career just to, just to make that plug. I owe my career to pirated software online. I learned how to work Adobe Photoshop and do all this crazy shit that like now I make a living off of and if but I couldn't have afforded it, it was like a thousand dollars to buy it back then and I was working in the mall. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff about setting it in that time personally and also like just you know, it it's fun to like nostalgia pieces are like they're cool, you know, like one thing is missing is the, probably the only like hard like uh, advice or criticism I'd give. Please. At no point someone had the phone ring and said, "Mom, I'm on the internet." <laughs> Ninety nine was still yeah. dial up, right? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't work in like <laughs> Huckleberry, like yelling at, 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 at yeah. It's like I'm on the. I was downloading a song. Sorry, well, sorry, sorry. Well, well, Jolene's kind of late to the party, so her household gets the excuse. And um, yeah, I just didn't come up with between Huckleberry and Rick, I guess. But uh, yeah, you can add that in ADR. I can do it. I, I can do that. Do it. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if people have questions. Does anyone? We will. We will take a periodic question. Deb, your video editor. Anything strike you or comments too? A thing you Concerns. liked? Uh, 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 I was going to ask the the difference between uh, shooting documentary and then switching to to this form. Uh, just problems, issues. I don't know differences. You know, I think what one big difference is you don't have the immediacy of documentary. Like I think with with documentary, at least the way I did it was. 
Um, you get your ticket, you go, and you start shooting. And there's just so much more to plan for with a narrative film. Uh, casting, locations, uh, gear, crew. I mean, you saw the credits. Like, There's a lot of people credited in this movie. And all movies, because it's just such a... Narrative film is just such a huge enterprise to make it look good. I mean, you need a lot of people pulling in the same direction. And that was, I think, the best thing that I took, like, that, that I enjoy from doing narrative versus documentary is that documentary, well, for Flying Paper was, was dope because I got to co-direct it with, with uh, my partner, Nitin Sahani, and um, we, had, we had a good team behind it, too. But documentary can be really lonely, and at least when you're shooting a film, it's it's such a collaborative, you know, affair. Is it sort of and simplifies the process to some degree with documentaries? It's it's you have to live by what our, we tell our kids sometimes, which is you get what you get and yeah. you don't get upset. Yeah, I think that's basically. You, that, I mean, that you have to shoot someone talking about a thing. You can't tell them like. Can you be a little more emphatic about the yeah. thing you're, you're, you can't coach them? So the biggest transition, and that's something that, yeah, I would call out as a difference shifting from documentaries. You can't tell the person you're interviewing in a documentary. I need, can you try it again? And how is that process for you? Did you have experience coaching theatrically and directing actors before this? No. I and say that as an actor. So I'm curious what that was like for you going into that. And yes, I mean, that is the thing about documentary is because, I mean, you can go shoot for a week and end up cutting all the footage out of your film. And then just, it's just, it just is part of the process. You can't, you can't shoot for a week, a narrative film and cut the whole thing, or you just wasted a ton of money. Right. Um, so you, you have to like plan more and you have to be more engaged with a whole lot of more people. And, um, did you have a lot of rehearsal process? Uh, yeah. So working with actors. So yeah, that, that, that was something that was like something I really had to focus on. Like, I think in the early proof of concept stage, I was very much like, uh, drifting more towards like the crew and the camera and making sure everything got set up. And I wasn't like necessarily putting enough focus on the actor. I mean, they did a great job anyway, but like we had to do a couple of reshoots and stuff like that. But, but really it was like, kind of switching my brain and being like, okay, stop doing what you know you're comfortable with and start focusing on the stuff you're not comfortable with. And that was for me working with, working with actors because I, I know to answer your question, I haven't had much experience but working with actors. In how different is it? I mean, let me ask you, with regard to how you would shoot documentaries. Because totally I don't different. know anything about shooting documentaries. But no, but did you deal with people where you had to ask, where you were the person who would ask the right questions? Like my role right now yeah. is to ask the right questions to draw you out and to, you know, just speak, you know, help you along with speaking about your project and your work. Um, yeah. Is it the same thing with documentaries? And then, you know, however that's analogous to getting a performance out of someone to just draw it out of them. Like, can you think of it this way? Or dig, get in the dig deeper. Well, I don't want to give myself too much credit for. I mean, the actors do the work, you know. And and I think like with documentary, like I was very much sort of prided myself on not coaching people, you know. 
like I would be very active listener. Like no, you but said. you're in the role. I'm not trying to coach you. No, like, no, no. But I'm saying tell the, me, the difference. Tell, I want, I'm not trying difference. to like glide you into this. Yeah. No, but how you have to be engaged and you know what you're trying to elicit from them and, and, and go. You know, I, I would say like what, what is similar is that both requires a lot of listening. You know, it, when I listen to the actors and when I let them you know, not let them when they sort of uh, told me when it felt good, <laughs> when the when the take felt good, like that was usually when when we would be like, OK, we're there. That's such a good thing to have from a director, I would say, though, that I I don't act. A lot. I say I'm an actor. I mean, but that I say that just from like that's where I was born artistically. I moved into like music and I've done a lot of different things and I don't really act. And, you know, it's just. You're not trying to be an actor. It's a hard thing to just go out and do plays. It's like, you know, if you're just like, oh, I like doing it. I'm like, all right, move aside. I'm trying to be an actor. So, um, but I will say that my experience with it is like, you know, the more frustrating directors would be like the ones who were like very rigid and like, this is how I need you to be. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very refreshing for someone to, because I would definitely have problems with things, but then I would work with directors and be like, oh, I can't say anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it was humbling too, like working with working with the actors and kind of checking my ego or maybe checking like what I thought this character was necessarily, like opening more um, avenues for creation and you know more input and stuff like that. I think. Well, I'll 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 give you a good analogy. Like we were really struggling with the fight the fight scene. Um, at the bus stop? Yeah, at the bus stop. Like that was a real struggle because I was pulled in 40 different directions at the time. Um, you know, because I wasn't just directing, I was producing, right? And um that sort of rage for Dan was something that needed a lot of, you know, needed a lot of work. I mean, he's just he's genuinely a very like gentle and kind person. So that was like the opposite of who he is, you know, on the day to day. Um, so I had the idea that, okay, Dan gets along really well with a couple people in the crew. I'm totally like pulled in 50 different directions. So, uh, Carrie love, uh, the line producer, and Matthew Willits, who is the second AC, I uh, said, okay, look, Matthew is your director today and Carrie is your acting partner. And I'm going to be doing all these other different things. And I just sat back and let them do it because like, you know, Matthew has a lot of like training in like fight choreography and that sort of thing. Well, did anything change from it being the one punch? Um, no, I mean like, it was not scripted like that at all. It was very much just like, let's just like shoot a bunch of different stuff and see how it works in the editing. One thing I have to bring up that really, sorry, struck me about that scene was actually, um, and please tell me I need to know if, the, if I'm right or wrong about this, so is the high pitch sound I heard in like my left ear when the hit came in the sound, was that there? 
or did I just have like a weird hearing moment? I think you might have just had a weird hearing Well, moment. man, that was cool. And you should add that <laughs> well, in. I don't know. If you thought it was cool, then it was on purpose. I heard this like nice ring right when it came or it was just whatever. It, it hit the right note. But no, it, I, it, that was in the But it, I thought it was I, I, I got tense during that scene thinking it was going to go really far. When I saw Brass Knuckles mm-hmm. and like that's not a joke. Like that's a serious thing, and like he was fucked up from one punch. And the way, like, it was just very realistic, and it didn't get overly graphic to a point where you know mm-hmm. anything became gratuitous or unbelievable. And mm-hmm. and and it, it was just what it needed to be in terms of violence. Go ahead. I thought the um, clear book bag was pretty interesting. The idea that it seemed like all students had to carry clear book bags. Um, yeah. It seems like something they should probably incorporate now. That's, um, that but came then, after Columbine, right? But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, don't, I can't like recall if we had. I know I didn't have to carry a clear book bag. But um, and then I thought I also paid close attention to the socioeconomic statuses of different students, mm-hmm. and I thought that was pretty interesting. How it built their character, how it was maybe unexpected, mm-hmm. how it was like. Oh, I get it now. I, I see why you're like that because their status is interesting. Yes, the uh, the clear backpacks came into vogue after Columbine, which was also '99. It was early '99 or maybe something. '98, but I think it was fall of '99. Yeah, don't quote me. Um, so yeah, so that was very much um, a nod to that. Um, you we just set the location as Ohio ninety nine. Yeah, right? I mean it's a it's you know it's where in I the grew description up. it's Rust Belt Ohio. Yeah. But yeah, I looked up, I kind of did it because I saw the clear backpacks too, and I was and I realized that that's something that's come into it's been a response to um, violence in schools and weapons in schools, and um, I didn't realize it, it actually struck me as like oh my god this goes back to ninety nine. Mm-hmm. We've been dealing with this shit where that that actually was first introduced as like a response to yeah yeah I mean it's a subtle thing but it does you know if you but were it plays in, in the school it's at that subtle time, you know it's it, subtle you but you also out. use it in the plot because the teacher sees the tape in mm-hmm. Huckleberry's bag because of the clear backpacks and you call attention to it but in a way that is you know. You're not like, look at the clear backpacks because of gun violence. It made me think as an audience, like, oh, yeah, clear backpacks. That goes back that far. It's more fun to figure it out. Someone who was watching and into the story, the clear backpacks and the fact that you've been using over went right over my head. Like, that's how much it wasn't focused on as the point that I didn't even think about it. Like, she brought it up just now. And I'm like, oh, yeah. They're clear back, like, and it was completely focused on too, and in the story. But I was just elsewhere in the story, didn't even think about it. So that's so it was kind of seamless. It's kind of an Easter egg in that in that way. No, no, no. It's it's just that's just one of those like contextual things. You know, it's like even if you don't like process it, like it's still there in the context. So it doesn't really matter if you think about that as a response to Columbine or not. Like, it's just part of the... But I think I will give you a compliment. It it speaks to a consciousness of the environment. That, like, you could have easily made this movie without that being there. 
You could have had the like tape sitting under Huckleberry's books instead of in a clear backpack. And I appreciate that sort of consciousness that brought to light, like I said, for me to land on me like, oh, my God, we've been dealing with like having these policies in schools because of gun violence going back to like 90 fucking nine. And before that, I mean, well, good. I, I, I spent like. $80 $80 on clear backpacks. So. <laughs> well spent. Well I didn't spent. totally, you know, waste that money. Um, there actually was a little mini scene where Huckleberry says something like, these stupid backpacks are the worst thing to come out of Columbine. But more to your point, like, I cut it that calls out. calls attention to it. I yeah. called it out because it didn't, it didn't need to be in there. And, um, yeah, so it's cool that we're even having this conversation. Thank you, Ebony. And, um, yeah. So, um, but then to your other point, you know, as far as like the different socioeconomic, um, you know, situations for each character, like I did want that to come through and to not be like what one expects. So, you know, both of the African-American teenagers, Will and LaVon, both come from two parent homes, more like middle class, upper middle class, whereas Jolene and Huckleberry are more lower middle to lower class, I guess. You, you know, know Jolene wh- lives in a trailer and um Huckleberry lives, you know, in a basement converted into a bedroom. Um so, you know, I mean it's as far as like people like I, I don't like to just pigeonhole like how we represent people. So I have to say going on that point of st- sort of subverting expectations, which, again, you're you're doing in a much better way than the writers of Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> the um, And I'm Season interested eight. to know how this landed on anyone else. Did anyone else expect the cops to behave differently during the plot? I felt like it was interesting to me that that, you know, in today's context with what we'll see on social media all the time, that, uh, you know, you have two white cops in a Rust Belt work, workplace, Ohio town, have a black kid who found someone injured, and then they believe him and follow up on his story. To some degree, I was just like, it subverted some of my expectations of, like, they, they I, I know they were trying to, like, get ahead and, like, that they have their own motivations, but I was kind of tense for him in the back seat that it was somehow going to come back on him. I I think tension is good. I mean, I think the tension and understanding why real world issues, why there would be tension is, is totally cool. And I mean, not totally cool is, is, is purposeful, you know? Um, well, I mean, this is just a doorway into, I'm interested in just how you came to write the cops the way you did. Cause they, 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 in general, I was just like, this is not where I thought things were going with them to some degree and different. I, I think for the cops, I mean, they're also kind of dicks to will too. I mean, they're not kind of dicks. They're total dicks to will. So, you know, it's not like it, it's, it's that murky gray area. You know what I mean? It's like, you could see either of these cops like doing terrible things or just like trying to get through their nine to five sort of thing. It actually, and this goes into another thing I had that, that hit landed on me at the end, but it's, it makes sense to bring it up now because I'm wondering, is this play into the larger theme of what the ultimate, like Huckleberry does, uh, through his own actions and the happenstance 
uh, of his surroundings and things out of outside is use the injustice of our justice system to serve justice yeah. to someone. Well, I think that was sort of his big like. I don't want to give up too much spoilers. So, but I, I will just kind of talk about it. I would a, say anyone listening way. to this, I will do in the intro, like what you need to watch. What is the point watch of listening it. to this before you've seen the movie? Does anyone agree? Is if you're yeah, an so audience, just so you know, if you're an audience member who's gotten this far, I hope you're interested enough to go watch the movie. And we will say, I don't think we've spoiled anything right now. So if we're going into spoiler territory, we'll call it out. But what are you doing here? So <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> Huckleberry's arc. Um, I think when you're a teenager, you see things very black and white, you know, right and wrong. And I think also as a teenager, you're starting to, at least I'll speak for myself, um, I was starting to sort of realize like all the sort of messed up stuff about society, you know, like this isn't fair, like, you know, racial profiling and police injustice and you know, not not just that, but like, you know, capitalism and, and you know, this this structure that we live under and all the inequality that it breeds. Right. And, you know, as a teenager, you're just very much like I'm against this. I'm against this. Like rah, rah, rah. But shortly thereafter, I think for a lot of people, most people, you have to sort of like make you know, uh, allowances within this structure to like get what you want or to like live a, a happy life. And I think that was kind of Huck's big dilemma was he wasn't the rebel anymore. Like he prided himself in the beginning of the film on being the rebel, being the like, you know, the smart mouth who's like, not going to take shit from authority figures to giving in and playing along with something that no, but that's the ultimate rebellion to me. Okay. Well, that's fair is too. to say, I mean, that's how fuck you the system it. and fuck what you're going to say is right. As far as me, like I'm going to say, I'm going to use the system yeah. to deploy what I believe to be justice. And I think you take the audience. And if anyone disagrees, I think you take the audience through the arc of being like, yeah, fuck Clint mm -hmm. for what he did and keeping and the and and also people who are pro life. This is basically Huckleberry saves this baby. Mm hmm. Or at least it sounds like the trajectory Jolene was on is like she did not want to keep his baby and be, or at least she didn't want to be with him. Who's going to be in a rougher situation? Who knows how he would have clung on? And just it's interesting that by the end of it, and if anyone feels differently, it's just such a gray area to be in. Where and then for Huckleberry to forgive the unknown neighbor, mm -hmm. basically saying like, "Are you done?" Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like he he had to sort of set that one aside. You know what I mean? Like, um, he found justice, like you said, in his own in his own way, and totally like that takes balls. And I think Huckleberry would appreciate that. And I, David. you know, I think like no one's feeling sorry for. I mean, maybe you feel a little bit of sympathy for Clint, and unexpectedly. Um, because I think like I gotta say it's some cold shit when it, it dawned on me this on the second viewing 
Huckleberry took his fucking job. Oh, didn't he? It no, like he, didn't he was take working at the same place. That's funny. He's wearing a jumpsuit. No, he took his job. He took his girl. That's funny. He took his kid. No, it's cold. It's Huckleberry shit though. That and I gotta ask: Is that like like yeah? Do, where does the name like? That's a unique name to give a character. And I only know like the 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 Val Kilmer portrayal. I think sticks right. closest to me. Of right, but where is yeah huckleberry but i'm like yeah that's some cold shit he drops on clint i won't deny that that that's funny about he thought he took his job <laughs> because i always thought about it as rick got him a job but that, i like your version better so i'm i'm going to just from now on huckleberry took clint's job and um is <laughs> living his surrogate life with without apology um what was the other question <laughs> No, that's Huckleberry's a cold motherfucker. But that's what I'm is saying. That why you it's name like, him Huckleberry? It, it's not. It's not black and white. It's not cut and dry. You know. I mean, there's just a lot of like. Well, at the end, that's why I say, when I say about Clint, I'm like, I have to come down to a decision. Like, how do I feel about this? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I like that it ends ambiguous, and like people can take it different ways. Like, oh, that's fucked up. I don't know if some people will be like, oh, is that is Huck. I, that's that's one crit- another critique I will throw at it that's maybe like not as aloof as saying like you know mom I'm on the internet get off the phone is the music at the end was almost disturbing like Huckleberry was wrong to do it and the fact that I felt like he was in the right it 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 made me feel conflicted a bit because the music kind of evoked an emotion okay. where it was like look what he's got no way with and I was like good why is it bad. But I, it, but then again, it feeds into like it, it, it reflected my state of like this is a fucked up scenario to see a character in, and it's not one I've had to deal with as an audience member before that I can really recall. I mean, I think the last scene of a good film. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say this is a good film. I think the last scene should like leave you like thinking about it, you know. And and leaving the theater and not like maybe not fully satisfied or, you know, it's not like wrapped up in a total tidy little bow, you know, I mean, it's like something that's going to stick with you and maybe you'll watch it again and see something different. And um, well, that's why the more I think about it, as you're saying it and I, you know, said it out loud, I'm like, it's not even a critique. It's just that like, that's how I felt at the end It's like it did fit. Because that's where I was, was, and that's like, whoa. (laughs) Jolene was where I am at the end. Yeah, she's living in that. And the one thing about the mother that was really interesting was that her mother, it seemed like, basically kind of convinced Jolene, you should avoid, like, this piece of shit, like, Clint's a piece of shit. Don't make the mistakes I did. When, you know, in some ways, when having that candid conversation and, um, that landed on me a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think their relationship is really like, you just want them to hug so bad. You know, there's <laughs> so much affection in that request for her Wendy's order. It. Yeah. That was a nice scene. And maybe you think that's a turning point in the relationship, but I think it just shows that it's Rocky. You know, it's like, no, I don't think it's different. It's just like, that's another moment. Yeah. Like there's the moment when she's like, well, you get on, you look like a fucking whore. Right. What do you want for dinner? Do you want like the cheese fries or? All right. right. <laughs> and I think Jolene's mother is, you know, Tony. And it, it, 
not said in the movie, but that's her name in the script. Um, I think she's she's wrestling with a lot too. You know, I mean, she's you know, it's kind of alluded to. It's it's mentioned that her ex husband in her eyes was a piece of shit, and he died short shortly after they got divorced, and you know, trying to raise daughter on her own, and to also have to sort of carry the memory in a positive light of her husband is like really like weighs on her and it comes out in these really like sometimes it comes out in these sort of snippy like you're trying to connect but you just blew it with your daughter sort of ways so but that was all Sarah and um, Jennifer because you know like I said like not much of that was scripted really seriously and um, they just like drew it drew it out and it, made no it into and the there story. were so many little things like that that made everyone feel fleshed out and it's something i always appreciate is like no matter how minor a character is there's something to them that gives you know and, and not that the mother isn't a minor character um she's like, a supporting character yeah that's no, fair to say no and 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 it moves the the story forward and um Sorry. That's okay. Is everyone doing okay in the audience? Do we have any questions? We're taking a quick break. Or does anyone need to take a potty break? I also like offer that up to the guests. We can take a potty break if you need no, to. No, I'm good. Um, I like that the students support it awkwardly. Because they know that they know it. They know the truth. But they're like trying to see him for... Because he says he's been hooked for like six years. Or he said, right. He said, at no time in this school did you ever know me as somebody different than Huckleberry, so like, let's not play this game. So mm -hmm. I think the students are pretty good at that, too. Like, no, you guys know that he goes by Huckleberry. Let's not act like he doesn't and try to... Um, but the question, or the, the, statement we the statement we had from Ebony um, is appreciating that the... Students around Huckleberry were accepting of who Huckleberry was. The only, I think, the only moment where there is when Huckleberry first comes out of the bathroom, someone's like, "Wrong bathroom." Right. Who is just a you know random. But for the most part, but at, at the very least, you get that Huckleberry's asserted himself enough to be like he's not living in fear, constant ridicule, getting through day to day. He can talk to his friends in the class. He's not getting mm -hmm. slammed against the locker by jocks. That's not the story of him in high school. Really? The more the focus is like, Oh, you like this girl, you know, the standard high school. Stuff. And mm -hmm. that's what really like I appreciated. And, and, and I feel that, um, transgender audiences will appreciate is, Huckleberry's normalcy as a character and like we're saying about like this is a plot this is a love triangle like someone caring for someone in an abusive relationship mm -hmm. and wants to protect them and comes with this you know plant that could be anyone sure. and I think I appreciated that just from the perspective of, of yeah I want to see that happen more with transgenders like these are just human beings and they're complicated and they care about people and it doesn't have to do with that aspect of their identity I think in the original script, like Huckleberry had even more friends. I had to pare it down a bit, you know, Just for casting. Yeah. And logistics budget. and budget and all that fun stuff. Um, but, you know, Huckleberry is always from day one had a big, like strong sense of himself and like a strong personality. 
And like, yeah, like some people might like snicker or say some shit in the hallway, but it's not going to like stop him. It's not going to, he's, I mean, it's just, you know, he, he, he'll, you know, grit his teeth and, you know, throw him a fuck you under his breath or, you know, to their face if it's, if it's warranted and, you know, get along with his day. And, um, and I think, you know, his friends, you know, were very much like, they've grown up with him, you know, they know him for who he is and they're just over it, you know, like they're not like hung up on this shit anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, most of the students, even if they're not friends with him are like, yeah, well, whatever. They're like over it. So it's more of like a, a generational kind of adversary, you know, like the teenagers versus the adults sort of thing. I mean, not ubiquitously because there's, you know, like you said, Huckleberry's stepfather and Jillian's mother. And, you know, like there are warm hearted, like adults in this allies in this film too. But as far as like representing, like, you know, the conservative neighbor neighborhood watch type and the, uh, the overbearing principal or the, you know, the sort of like John Wayne inspired sheriff and, uh, you know, these folks like it, it gets, it gets, it's, it's murky, but a lot of that is more perhaps generational than, you know, as far as like just straight up transphobia or misidentified homophobia yeah. because, you know, Phillip's case, he doesn't even recognize, I mean, he knows that he's, doesn't like Huckleberry, but he doesn't even acknowledge Huckleberry's gender identity to, you know, I think for him it's more homophobic. Philip, the, the neighbor who attacks him. Correct. Yeah. Because, uh, yes, yeah, the, the, and we, the talk, neighbor, we talked about that briefly, but when we were setting up the camera, I was saying, like, what was the neighbor's name? I just have that in my notes as neighbor. He said, well, we never actually say his name. I said, honestly, that makes sense because it is this nameless, faceless, hostility right. that I am experiencing in my family right now. Mm. Um, I don't think I've talked to you about that or like I don't post about it on Facebook, but it's going on since right. my sister came out as transgender. Now uh, my mom is a hundred percent like, how do I, how do I support my new daughter? And you know, she's mourning the loss of her son as, 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 as a mother going through this does. But she's also like, what do I, how do I be a good mom to my new beautiful daughter? And and right. and my sister's wife is 100% on board and her daughter is fine. But my mom's brothers and sisters are all suddenly uh, by the book Catholic. I don't know what the fuck they're being told, but they're, you know, they're throwing around the word degenerate and refusing to come to Easter if my sister shows up dressed as who she believes she should be. And as an atheist, I'm like, what the fuck, Catholics? Mm -hmm. And how are you throwing around the word degenerate when you're still going to Catholic church and not on a daily basis calling out the systematic pedophilia that institution has been covering up? Shut the fuck. My fucking sister can't come to Easter. Fuck you. You can't come to Easter. That's where I'm at. Maybe I'll edit this out. Maybe they won't listen to the show. I hope they listen to the show after they've watched the movie and gain a little fucking empathy that, that my sibling is the same damn person they've always loved. 
And that's why, yeah, your movie like shook me to the core just seeing someone be real and humanize and make the audience empathetic for it. Thank you. Oh, that's why representation is important. I mean, you know, straight up, like that is why we need to see more diverse characters in movies and not just in the same fucking roles. And can we never see cisgender actor play a transgender role again? Like, <laughs> let's just be done with that. Like that ship is so sailed and over with. And, and well, okay. Speaking of things we might edit out of this film, um, surprisingly for me, I thought the niche LGBTQ plus film festival community would be supportive of this film. Not so. Um, we've had conversations with executive directors of a major LGBTQ plus film festival. I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised by that just because of the grayness of it. And, um, yes. And was told in no uncertain terms that because Huckleberry wasn't completely sympathetic, wasn't the model minority, they were afraid to program the film. They loved the film. They loved the production value, loved all of it. But simply because they're trying to, there's pressure to control the narrative of, of trans representation. Um, they was described to me as they believe that trans representation right now is in the Ellen DeGeneres coming out stage, like the late nineties when Ellen came out, Ellen perfect loved by everyone. That's the acceptable lesbian in the late nineties. So now by this logic, which we completely agree, disagree with, um, trans characters have to be perfect and flawless. And Are you comfortable if I, if, sympathetic. I, if I open up to the audience, does anyone f agree with that? To see where they're coming from. I mean, it's where actors are in general. Like, look where, like, this is where you have to start with film and television. Look at the males and females that are straight, that are, that have been cast for roles that we're just getting out of. It's got to be the pretty female. It's got to be the, you know, there's all these things that we're just trying to get out of now with, with your basic straight people in a, in the society that we've decided is this certain way. Just regular. Um, but that's that's the thing is like I like think just that what people have seen as as the normal society that's been created. Yeah. That alone you can't go out of with what they see as normal. Like you can't have. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? We're just starting to cast people like myself with natural hair. Right. Yeah. So even something as simple as being able to allow African-American women or men for that matter to wear their natural hair that's big or kinky, curly or dreaded, locked. Um, they're just starting to allow people to do that more. Yeah, things are just getting more diverse. And it's just getting to the point of like, oh, the main character, female, doesn't have to be beautiful. Here, here's the thing. Where I'd come from, I would say the trans community is absolutely right to look at a movie like The Silence of the Lambs and say, fuck that. Sure. Because there's no depth to that. The only part of his character is that he's transgendered and a murderer. Those are the only two parts of that 
the 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 you know the villain in that film. Yes. And I think crying games. There's really, I mean, but 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 for like, there's a psychology to it or whatever. But I mean, it was alienating and it was wrong and and it, and it, and it created fear and reinforced harmful stereotypes. And I say that, and I agree with like what true equality will be like. Oh, someone can be a transgendered villain in a story or morally gray or whatever, but it's not because they're transgendered. Well, I think this is the thing is like you end up censoring people and you end up like uh, dictating how people can be represented. And like, like, how is that like going to advance, you know, the cause if like you're afraid? How did your your to represent people in a nuanced, real like because like you said, like we get to know Huckleberry's motivations in this film, like. Huckleberry's motivations to get revenge have nothing to do really with the fact that he's transgender, right? And if we're not going to program a film like this in the festival, then we don't, we miss out on seeing a nuanced character who is transgender or who is, you know, another, you know, less represented, you know, member of our society. And we just get to see the same thing over and over again. I'm watching the show Barry on uh, HBO right now. A cisgender guy can be a cisgender white guy can be a sympathetic uh, serial killer, or a, assassin. Of, you know, you know what I mean. It's hilarious. Like, yeah, right. It's very sympathetic. But like, like how limiting? How limiting is that for like? So like cisgender white guys, cisgender white guys be anything is what I'm saying. Is like they can be anything. Whereas transgender characters can only be the super narrow definition. I just think that if, if you're only promoting the model minority, you're really doing a disservice how to about, the human experience. How about your lead actor? Yeah. How did he feel portraying this character? Dan is way better. I wish he was here about talking about all of this stuff than I am because Dan, like really put himself into this role. I mean, he loves this character. He loves, uh, and this isn't just me putting words in his mouth. This is me. Like we've done a lot of talks at festivals and stuff. And I've, I've heard him say this enough times to know like how he feels about this film. And he loves that. It's not a coming out story that it's, you know, a nuanced character, uh, somebody who is relatable, and not just the same, you know, kind of role where you're either just like a side character there for a little bit of flavor or, you know, you're somebody who's like completely stereotyped through the whole thing. So, no, I mean, he's like completely on board. Like Huckleberry is as much Dan as it is my creation because there there would be no authenticity without him. Uh, really like delving deep into this character and bringing his own life experience to the character and speaking without any ambiguity whatsoever that this is broadening representation and that we do not need to keep catering to this model minority, uh, you know, plan of, of, you know, gaining acceptance because it's more about demanding and saying this is who I am. So 
deal. You know what's so crystal fucking clear to me though? If this movie had been a cisgendered man or a high school student, and this girl, and they had, and he took her to do this romantic thing on a hill, and he loves her. He's pro- he shows you in the movie he loves her, and then she's with this piece of shit who beats her when he finds out she's pregnant, and he does all these same things. We'd all be like, yeah. Fuck yeah, I love that guy. Exactly. That's the thing. That's the whole point. And for anyone to just be like, oh, is it saying something about transgender people? No. That this, that they're, it's like, no, we, you're, you're like having your suspicions or, or paranoias about that kind of like just wedged into it. And it's fucked up. Yeah. The movie. Yeah. But when I, when I translate it to that, you know, it's, I don't think you would face that sort of like, what is this saying about white men? Right, exactly. That's the whole thing, is the standard, the double standard, that in this instance, trans characters have to be perfect, whereas cisgender white men just can be anything that their hearts desire, and everybody just you know doesn't bat an eye at it. They don't represent all cisgender white people. Barry, when he's killing people, doesn't represent all cisgender white men. Just right. as Huckleberry doesn't represent all transgender white man it's just a, his own character his own person his own experience and that's how we need to start looking at people uh without you know this veil of how they should be represented because when you're thinking through that veil of how somebody should be represented you're not allowing them to be a full human being a full like fledged character a full like emotional uh nuanced i know i say nuance all the time but like you can't be a real human if if every single editorial decision is passed through this sheen of you know what impact is this going to have on the community how this rep- how this person is represented well let's have a cisgender high five yeah. fuck cisgender white Woo. men high five all right uh i want to thank my studio audience i want to thank you roger um, please rate the film on Amazon. Tell your yes. friends. Uh, maybe we'll have another screening and you bring the cast over there. Are they in Ohio? Is your cast? Where, where's they this all, cast? They're all they over all the place. Scattered. Ah. Scattered away from me. All right. Well, I, uh, I really are. appreciated getting to see Couple. the film. I really appreciated uh, getting to uh, go a little deeper into it with you. Thank you, Roger. Well, thanks for having me, BZ, listening and... Um I'm, I'm really like, this is great. So I appreciate it. And I, I mean, there's nothing to plug. Watch the fucking movie. It's on Amazon. Yeah, just get yeah. off your ass and go to ah. Facebook.com slash Huckleberry movie. And, like the movie. Uh, like us and go to Amazon, search for Huckleberry movie. You'll see a half submerged Volkswagen in the ground. And um, that's the right movie. It's one of my favorite shots in the film. Thank you. And uh, yeah, spend two ninety nine to run it and actually support independent film. Yes. I recommend buying it. As I said, it's better, better on the second viewing and it probably gets better on the third. So thank you, everyone. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com 
slash BZDUG. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.